Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we are in Canada's Niagara winemaking region, where one winery has taken its hospitality offering one step further by launching its own bakery. When it came to the grain crops, we wanted to explore it further to see what opportunities were there, what ideas were there, what flavors could be unlocked. And the bakery seemed like a really big challenge, but also a really great opportunity to do that. We will also hear from the team behind Blind Ambition, a new documentary on four refugees who become top sommeliers. This film really has changed things completely. The four Zimbabweans have started a trend now. They're the ones that might break down the doors of the very traditional and and white world of wine. All that's a new cookbook by the founders of one of London's favourite restaurants, the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. In Canada's Niagara winemaking region, it isn't unusual for wineries to have a restaurant on site. But one of the region's best boutique wineries, Pearl Morissette, has taken its own hospitality offering one step further by opening a new standalone bakery. RPM Bakehouse opened in January to showcase the rarer grains and other ingredients grown in the region. Monaco's Toronto correspondent Thomas Louis spoke to owner Daniel Hadida and and the designer Alison McQuaid, who designed the new space. Let's have a listen. The idea of RPM Bakehouse came primarily from a desire to further connect with Ontario agriculture. We had been really successful at the winery and at the restaurant at sourcing beautifully grown ingredients from Ontario. And there was a few notable exceptions, conspicuous exceptions to that. One of which being dairy, which is really challenging to find of quality because it's very regulated in Ontario. And one was grains, which struck me as particularly absurd because we produce most of the grains that the world consumes in Canada, a good majority between Canada and the Ukraine, of course. And found it very challenging to source organic stone milled grains and to find a lot of diverse grains and to find producers that were sort of willing to work with us and take feedback and and uh, make adjustments and make changes and things like that. So we put a considerable amount of effort towards uh, seeking out uh, sources of grains in Ontario. And we were fortunate to start working with a baker called Anthony Vieira, who joined us at the restaurant when we were quite a small team and definitely We're not looking to hire a baker, but found someone who had shared values. And he had already started to put some effort into meeting and developing relationships with some really incredible farmers in Ontario who were working in a really progressive way, who were focusing on uh, an international movement towards working with diverse heritage grains and stone milling and trying to really understand the power of this kind of staple ingredient an opportunity became available for the RPM Bakehouse space during COVID. And although the timing was conspicuous because we had been shut down and we were dealing with a lot of other challenges, the opportunity to provide a large scale terminus for a lot of the grain farmers that we were working with and the really beautiful grains that they were growing was very enticing. 
And we felt like at the restaurant, there was only so much that we could do with grain in a way that still allowed for like a really delightful, exciting meal. Couldn't have every course incorporate bread and things like that. And so to that end, we felt like really, we just had a lot more to say when it came to working with these ingredients. When it came to the grain crops, we wanted to explore it further to see what opportunities were there, what ideas were there, what flavors could be unlocked. And the bakery seemed like a really big challenge, but also a really great opportunity to do that. And if a lot of these grains were perhaps unfamiliar to a lot of your customers in the village of Jordan, where the bakery is located, Daniel, which is, it's worth noting, only about five minutes away from the winery and the restaurant at Pearl Morissette. Was there anything about that that was a hard sell, perhaps, to some of the customers who were crossing the threshold? Yeah, so we saw the bakery as being a really great opportunity to increase accessibility, whereas the restaurant's sort of mission is to really treat uh, the idea of eating sustainably as something incredibly fantastical that feels completely not of place, although it completely is. The bakery is much more intended towards familiarity, accessibility, casualness. And uh, in that sense, we hope that we can engage with people who have an interest in what it means to sort of live in a more regenerative way on a frequent basis and engage in those conversations. And we actually really, in the start, I remember thinking about like, we'll use a bit of chocolate, you know, we'll source really great quality chocolate, or, you know, if we can find a great source for vanilla, we'll bring it in. You know, as we got closer to the bakery, I just found myself so bored with that idea because uh, that's literally what every single other place does. And so the notion of not working with that sort of stuff and uh, really forcing ourselves to focus on regionality and the delights of regionality has been really interesting because, again, it's just a small town bakery. So we're serving people ingredients that they've never heard of that grow in their backyard, which is always really fascinating. And that's like that's not a euphemism, quite literally. That's that's the case. So, yeah, it's been it's been interesting. And Alison, from a design vantage point, how did you approach what this new space would feel like and look like? And I guess more importantly, how it would function, uh, given that Daniel, as Daniel said there, this is a village bakery and the business that was on this site before was also a village bakery. But in its current incarnation is doing things from a culinary and a baking point of view that haven't necessarily been done before. Absolutely. Daniel was really clear at the beginning that the space had to feel accessible and it had to feel welcoming to the neighborhood of the village so that anyone that's coming in feels welcome, that that, that there isn't a, almost a, a design barrier. This space has to feel welcoming, comfortable, no sense of an intimidation in the space so that it really does feel like it's part of the fabric of the community there. And so... That's always a great brief to have when you, you know, when you're asked to to provide a space that that will feel like home to people who are visiting and people who who live in the village. And so that was in the original brief that Daniel laid out for us that it had to feel welcoming, that it feels like it's a sister to the restaurant. It feels as though it's maybe a little bit more of a you know, more integrated in, into the village a little bit more than maybe the restaurant because the restaurant stands alone as such an interesting architectural element within the farm. But we did want to bring a little bit of that, that the sort of power of the, the minimalism of the design that was established at the restaurant and bring that into the bakery as well. So the finishes of the bakery are very toned down. Everything has to have a function and sort of work towards the mission of the bakery. 
And so in that respect, we kept the palate of the restaurant very subdued and natural. Everything in the restaurant is very naturally sourced. A lot of wood and stone and metal and everything serves a function first and then and then has a design aesthetic and a, a design value sort of second. And that to me is way more important. And then, yeah, there's a bustle of activity. You see a lot of people moving around quickly and doing things. You have the energy coming from the bakery. You have the kitchen team running around. You have the patio full of people and the service team running around. And for me, hospitality businesses should feel like a beehive when you walk into a restaurant or a cafe or anything like that. It should feel really energized doesn't necessarily need to feel frantic or chaotic, but it should you should feel energy, there should be a palpability to that. And so you'll feel a lot of people moving around really intentionally getting stuff done and uh, you'll get a smile and a hello. And then there's just an array of beautiful pastries and products and drinks and wines and things like that laid out for people to purchase or ask questions about or criticize or sit down and enjoy. Danielle Hadida and Alison McQuaid speaking to Monaco's Thomas Lewis about RPM Bakehouse, a fine new bakery in the village of Jordan Station, an hour or so away from Toronto. Zimbabwe is a country known for its production of crops like sugarcane and tobacco, but one thing it's not famous for is its wine. That is why the new film Blind Ambition tells such a remarkable story. It follows a group of four Zimbabwean refugees, now settled in South Africa, who have become sommeliers at the top of their game in the country's most acclaimed restaurants. That would be an extraordinary tale in itself, but it is not actually the focus of Blind Ambition. Sophie Monahan-Coombs tells us more. Joseph, Malvin, Tanache and Pardon are no ordinary competitors in the World Blind Wine Tasting Championships in France, if such a competitor even exists. They are the first Zimbabwean team in its history and the subject of a new film, Blind Ambition. I caught up with the film's co-writers, co-directors and co-producers Warwick Ross and Rob Coe to find out more. Here's Rob on just how significant this competition is. So the the Blind Wine Tasting Championships are held by one of the foremost wine periodicals out of France called La Revue de Vin de France. And it is basically a global competition where countries from all around the world form teams, teams of four members. And each of those teams are generally selected by national championships And if you ask a lot of people in the wine world, most of them have heard of it. And when Warwick and I started digging deeper, we realized that it was actually quite a big event for sommeliers and those working in the wine industry outside of the more individual events like Master Somme and Master of Wines. And part of the competition is each of the countries have to taste 12 wines blind, six white, six red and they don't know where the wine is from and they have to work out purely from sight and taste where the wine is from, who the producer is, what region it comes from, including the country, uh, the producer and the vintage. So it's quite a, a task. The four men became the Zimbabwean team after being shortlisted for the South African team. 
It's the South African team's coach who realised they could make up their own team and represent their home country. I think the first thing to say is that they didn't know each other at all when they lived in Zimbabwe. And it was only after they had come across the border into South Africa and began to learn about wine and then led them to restaurants. They were serving waiting tables and wondering what this beverage was, discovered it was wine, discovered it was from grapes. And the more they learned about this, the more interested they got. They started entering themselves into competitions and that's really where they discovered each other. But they had the toughest time in Zimbabwe. It was at a time when uh, the country had rampant inflation. It was corrupt and very little food and very little money. Money they were making was not buying them enough food to feed their families. So it was really push factors that pushed them out of Zimbabwe into South Africa, where they were hoping to find enough money to send home to keep their families fed. Um, so that's really how they how the whole story started. And their natural talents sort of began to emerge once they got to South Africa, you know, particular talents that they had picked up as children in Zimbabwe, you know, climbing mountains with, in particular, one case with Tinashe, climbing the forested mountains with his grandfather, who would teach him how to identify various indigenous Zimbabwean fruits, fruits that we don't have in the West at all. But when Tinashe was studying wine, the only reference point he had to these wines was his indigenous fruits, not the Western fruits that we have because they had never tasted raspberries and blueberries and blackberries and things like that. So they brought a very unique skill to this world that they were entering and uh, it led them onto the competition. The competition is a huge undertaking, training, flying to France, driving around and tasting the most unusual wines possible is no easy feat and not a cheap one either. So we're two days away from the competition, which is pretty tight. So we're trying to use each and every opportunity that we get just to keep our pilots ready. Even in the car we're chasing, uh, yeah, everywhere we can. We ended up tasting wines 3am, 3.30. When the team reaches the competition, it's striking how much support they receive from the other competitors. And it's clear that they are making a welcome break from the tradition of white Western faces that dominate the competition. You'll have to find out how well they do by watching Blind Ambition, but it's clear that Joseph, Malvin, Tinashe and Pardon have uncorked not only their passion, but a change in the future of the industry. Well, I think they've made a huge impact uh, on the world of wine. And when you think that um, when we made the other film, Red Obsession, Rob and I were commenting to each other that uh, in that film, almost everybody was white. There were, there were no faces of colour in that at all. And this film really has changed things completely. The four Zimbabweans have started a trend now within their own country, Zimbabwe, where there are so many young men there with talent and ability who want to follow in their footsteps. And I, I think this is, you know, diversity. This is what they've been, been hoping for, that they will be the vanguard. They're the ones that might break down the doors of the very traditional and, and white world of wine. And hopefully there'll be lots of others in their footsteps, not just from their own country, but from other countries where people may look at this and feel that they really do have a chance to succeed in this world. Whereas I think even four or five years ago, I think the expectation was that, you know, this was a no-go area if you were a person of colour. 
That was Blind Ambition director Warwick Ross there, ending that report from Sophie Monan Coombs. You are listening to the menu on Monocle 24. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Thailand is on track to hit its 7.5 million tonne target for rice exports this year after a season of favourable weather boosted production. The Southeast Asian nation has also this week agreed to export more of the grain to Singapore. Thailand saw a 54% increase in foreign rice sales in the first half of this year and has benefited from a weak baht, which has kept Thai rice prices competitive. A Dutch city will become the first in the world to ban adverts for meat products in a bid to reduce consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. Harlem proposed the prohibition after adding meat to a list of products that contribute to climate change. It will come into effect in 2024 and will apply to ads on buses, shelters and screens in public places. Bad news now for those who opt for stevia over sugar. Artificial sweeteners are linked to an increased risk of heart disease, according to a new study. Concern over added sugar in food and drinks has seen many food producers turn to artificial sweeteners in recent years. But new research from scientists in France suggests their consumption could be linked to a 9% higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Workers at a Michigan branch of the fast food chain Chipotle have unionized, the first to do so across the firm's 3,000 U.S. locations. Restaurant staff in Lansing in central Michigan cited low wages and too few hours as among their motivations for forming the union. Chipotle, which serves Mexican food, said it was disappointed at the move. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu. Husband and wife duo Sam and Sam Clark have been running their restaurant Morrow in London's Clerkenwell since the late 1990s. It has become a steady favourite in the capital, braced for its Moorish cuisine and dishes from northern Africa and southern Spain. Now Sam and Sam have released a new cookbook called Morrow Easy. And as you may guess from the title, it's all about easier recipes for home cooking, paired with Sam and Sam's signature flavours and ingredients. The idea for the book was born during the pandemic, as the authors and restaurateurs explained to me at Midori House Studio One a bit earlier. The backstory is the whole world had this traumatic happening of the pandemic. And one moment we were open and we were feeding 200 people a day, employing lots of staff. And then within the course of a week, the government said, you know, don't eat out. We recommend you don't eat out. And so we just had to pull down the shutters And it was a nerve-wracking time. It was emotionally quite profound because you just realised that the restaurant is so much a part of who you are and so much of your routine. So, like everybody, we were shut away. And after the initial trauma, then you just had to get on with life. And we realised we had to feed four family members of different ages. And uh, we had time to cook. So it was this, you know... In a way, godsend, it was this privilege to be, have this time to feed the family and, and do it well. And we used you know, our knowledge of Moro food, but also we, used, we tried a few new things and we jotted it down and we took a record. And how did you decide which recipes to include in this book then? It was really sort of day-to-day choices, going to the local shops up the road and seeing what they had in and... And actually sort of having the space and the energy to try different ideas. But always, you know, we had lots of things. Actually, for the first time in 25 years, 
This was a sabbatical for Sam and I, and there were lots of other things we wanted to do. So the cooking, we wanted it to be efficient and quick as well. So that was kind of the parameter for the recipes. So simple ingredients, something that wouldn't take too long to cook, but equally delicious. Because one part was this luxury of having the time to cook. But the, uh, the flip side was quite quickly you became resentful for being your, the personal chef for your family. So you wanted it to be quick and easy. So you didn't spend all of your precious time on cooking for the family. I was just going to say that I, I, I admire how you were still excited to cook at home, even though, you know, this was something that you just had to do to feed your family members. Yes, well, I, I think, you know, when we're normally working at Morrow, you know, we've been working there all day and quite often at the end of the day you come home and you're tired and have less time and energy to, to cook at home. So actually it was the other, it was the reverse this way, so... I, what I do like about this book is, is is how simple it is indeed. And if you look at how the book has been divided into, into sections, you have easy toasts, then you have easy eggs and dairy, easy salads, easy veg, easy fish and, and so forth. Did writing these recipes down also require some kind of a, a change in your mindset? Yes. I mean, the normal approach would be to jot down every single little detail of how we cook the recipes at Morrow. But this was a different approach, and actually we really enjoyed it. It was sort of refreshing to approach it in a kind of more simplistic way, but also with the challenge of not compromising on, on the end result of the recipe. So just keeping it the methods simpler, the list of ingredients simpler, was a bit of a challenge, but we really embraced it, didn't we? Yeah. I also, I realised once we were in lockdown that I, 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 we either got things from the restaurant or, you know, we either did a big supermarket shop every two weeks. But during lockdown, there were these huge queues of people queuing up for loo paper or whatever they're queuing up for. And, um, no one knew, really. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, when we, we were very lucky. We've got a little local village high street and there weren't lots of people there. And it was a really great way of engaging with the small shops, the communities, people I'd neglected for years, if I'm honest. And also, likewise, unlike supermarkets, you really get in touch with the seasons, whether it be in a fishmonger, which has seasons, or, or the vegetable shop, which has seasons. And even, you know, butchers have seasons. So that was a huge privilege. And it sort of slightly shamed me what I'd been missing in the past. And it obviously it was all time led, there was more time to do it. But it it again was a enjoyable experience. The sort of local shopping was a fantastic um, eye opener. Absolutely, the pandemic taught us quite a few lessons, and I think one of them was also that people realised to appreciate the hospitality industry a bit more. Did it make you realise as well how important it is what you've been doing with your restaurants? Well, I mean, I think. We've always sort of been quite focused and had a direction. We knew the kind of food that we wanted to cook. And before you know it, it's 25 years. So, I mean, that has been a huge privilege, being able to cook for thousands of people over those years. But we've always sort of had our kind of focus and direction and wanted to cook the Moro food and Moorish food. I mean, when we finally opened, obviously we had a full start. You had people who hadn't been out for two years and they would approach the kitchen, it's an open kitchen, and they'd be in, in tears because so much of their life was the experiences eating out. And we represented a sort of freedom and a sort of connection with what makes them love coming and living in London. And so it was, there was a lot of emotion involved when we did finally open. A lot of people were really, you know, you realise what you meant to people. 
Absolutely. Let's talk about the book a bit more. Can you tell us more about those recipes you decided to include in this release? I wonder which of these recipes are, for example, something you cooked most often at home. I mean, it sort of changes all the time, but we do kind of lots of different sharing dishes. So we'd have kind of labne. So we, we make our, a quick version of labne, which is the strained yogurt cheese, literally by mixing Greek yogurt and cream cheese together and actually the result is really good and then depending on the season and the time we put a different topping whether it was kind of sweet corn with some spices and chili peppers um, during the summer or the courgettes and tomato and almonds so you know we sort of change things all the time it's really what you know Sam brought back from the shopping. But partly the way we're programmed is is we don't really like repeating things very much you know for us variety is the spice of life so we and we're not one of those family cooks who you know chicken pie on a friday and and fish pie and then we are still excited by food and we you know we want to go and go oh my god they've got that and let's use that or oh my god they got that and that's why we were able to amass so many recipes in relatively a short space of time because we're always still excited and trying new things really i wonder did you learn something during the pandemic that helps you at the kitchen at Moro as well, you know, you've been thinking about these simple recipes, but do they actually help your work with your restaurant? I think, you know, the whole the holy grail really with recipes is to produce something out of this world from a few ingredients as possible. So a sort of minimalism, but creating something beyond it, the sum of its parts is a sort of really cool thing. And so that's sort of, for me, one of, one of the great holy grails of a good recipe. And keeping it really accessible. And I would say this book, out of the other books that we've written, we really feel that, that this is for the home cook and, and that, that people really will find it easy to cook from. So, I mean, that's that's the wish. Talking about accessibility, one of the aspects is also that it's it's relatively easy, at least, to find the ingredients. Are there any harder ones included in this? Or do you think people can find all the ingredients they need? We kept it pretty simple I think 100% of the ingredients are either accessible at a supermarket or a couple of things online. I mean tied in with again the pandemic experience I think in this time it's so easy now to get almost every produce so in the past London you could get everything wasn't really a problem and there was a little a little bit different the further you went north but now delivery is so easy and it's so uh, yeah so pretty much you can get absolutely everything which is you know very exciting mm. even quite obscure things but, mm. yeah yeah really obscure we kept it quite simple still sam and sam clark there and their cookbook morrow easy is out now and that's all for this edition of the menu remember that we are back with a new episode again on friday at 2000 london time that's at midday if you're listening in los angeles meanwhile do check out our menu spin-off show food neighbors for great recipes and obviously you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of monocle magazine i am marcus hippi our studio engineer was callum mclean with editing help from emily sands once again we finish this program with a a soundtrack recommendation. Here is the KLF with Justified and Ancient. Thanks for listening. <laughs>